The book of Jonah, I'm going to be reading chapter 1, the first three verses. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. That's it. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Change of pace here. How many of you, when you were young, ever thought about running away? Some of you are young. I'm not, like outing you guys. Like, you know, like oh, I'm not saying nothing. Yeah, I know. Um, I can't say I ever seriously considered such a thing, uh, mostly because I grew up in a neighborhood where crime was relatively high, and I was not a very tough kid. And uh, I could barely handle myself at home, let alone on the road, so I don't think my prospects would have improved much. Um, my older siblings used to leave... I don't know if this was both of them. I think it was. Uh, used to leave runaway notes for my parents and then hide behind the couch, <laughs> which was right by the front door. Um, not the cleverest move, but whatever. I guess they, you know, you could probably hear them giggling. Um, but running away, that, that's a very common theme in children's literature. Uh, you know, Wizard of Oz, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn where the wild things are. I mean, these are very popular books. And, and the resolution of most of these stories is that they, they come back home. Uh, Grace figured it out as a small child. Uh, at one point, she, she exclaimed, what's the lesson of Peter Pan? I think it was Grace. Wasn't it you, Grace? Jemmy. It was Jemmy? Oh, I'm sorry. Jemmy. Jemmy, what's the lesson of Peter Pan? It was just stay home. She announced this out loud. And so I was like, yeah, that's, that's right. That's, that's the story. Now, you read these books, and it's like every runaway has their reasons why they ran away, right? Dorothy's running away to protect Toto. Max and where the wild things are, he doesn't want to eat his supper or something, right? I think Tom Sawyer was avoiding chores. Huck Finn is trying to take Jim to freedom. Uh, Lucy escapes into the wardrobe to, to go find Mr. Tumnus, right? Peter Pan doesn't want to grow up. And, and these reasons may be justified or foolish, but the point is that running away doesn't usually work out the way you think it will, right? Uh, it might lead to adventures, and it might lead to tragedy, uh, usually some mixture of both. Uh, but you usually find more trouble than you bargained for. And the best case scenario is that you get back alive, right? Uh, you learn the hard way that there's no place like home, as Dorothy says. Well, today I'm trying to start a series here in Jonah. Uh, and the book of Jonah is one of my personal favorites, and I won't be satisfied till it's one of yours. So we'll stay in it as long as it takes. Um, it is a book about evangelism and people who are bad at it. Introverts, misanthropes. In light of our vision to reach Allentown with the gospel, right? And since many of us are not great evangelists, right? And since many of us are introverts, if not misanthropes, I thought it would be fitting to tackle this book. And Jonah is perhaps the worst evangelist of all time. He's the most famous runaway in scripture. And he doesn't take it halfway either, right? He's, no, no hiding behind the couch for Jonah. 
but he, he kind of proves the rule that running doesn't usually work the way you think it will. Your problems tend to follow you. Now, I, I just said that every runaway has his reasons. That's true, but not all reasons are created equal, are they? Some are good, some are bad. If you run away because your home is dangerous, all right, that just makes good sense. That's a survival instinct. If you run away because you don't like doing dishes, you probably should just be spanked, and that's the end of that story, right? Um, some people run away to get married, right? That could be good or bad, depending on the situation. It certainly saves money, if nothing else. Um, some people run away by habit, you know? Certain dogs are like that too, right? The French army, you know, things like that. Um, the French jokes never get old. Um, the, the point is sometimes you've got to evaluate on a case-by-case basis. Why am I running and is this a good reason? Is the, and, and you have to look at the person that's running, if you're not that person, and say, like, you know, is that the sort of person who would run away and why? Why would they do that? So I, I think it's worth looking at Jonah the man. What do we need to know about this guy? Who is he? What does he do? Where is he from? What's his deal? And the fact of the matter is, is that these opening verses don't give us a whole heck of a lot of background. Uh, they give us his father's name, just in case it comes up on Jeopardy. Uh, but that's it. Uh, and if all we had was, you know, just this little section, we could only say of Jonah that, well, I don't know, he's Amatai's son, right? Um, and you could almost sympathize with him in that case because, you know, how are you going to feel about a message from God getting dropped in your lap right, like this? You know, it's like it would be a startling message to the average Joe. But if we dig a little deeper, the Bible gives us a little bit of context and a few other little details about Jonah. Not much, but some. And in 2 Kings 14, Jonah gets mentioned, and we are told that he's a prophet. Uh, we're told that he served during the tenure of Jeroboam II of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, now, the author of Kings also says that Jeroboam II was a wicked king. Uh, he encouraged idolatry, worshiping the God of Israel through images, and uh, Israel had been at a sort of weak point when jo- Jeroboam took the throne, and, and right before, it was at kind of at, a, at its low point. And what ended up happening was that Jeroboam ended up sort of restoring the kingdom. He expanded the borders back to where they had been, maybe even a little bit beyond. And Jonah's role in all of this was uh, to prophesy that that would happen. Uh, That Jeroboam, in spite of his wickedness, would restore some of the lost glory of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, Basically because God said it wasn't time for Israel to be blotted out. So, coming into this book, the average Israelite, if they know anything about Jonah, they know that Jonah had predicted good. Uh, He promised good things to a wicked king and a wicked nation. He was not a Jeremiah-style, gloom and doom type of preacher. Uh, It was much more of a prosperity message, if you like, a pro-Israel message. Health and wealth in spite of your idolatry, that was God's message, and Jonah preached it. Now, I'm willing to bet, we don't have the details, that Jonah also preached against all the idolatry in Israel, but that wasn't the emphasis, and it's not what he was known for. He was best remembered and recorded for being the guy who predicted victory. And so Jeroboam II led a long and prosperous life, and Jonah served under him, and life wasn't so bad. Jonah saw this king win victory after victory, including over Damascus. And we also know from this little brief snippet in 2 Kings where Jonah lived. We're told that he was from a little town called Gath-Hefer, an insignificant little village in Israel. And the name means the wine press of the digging. I don't know exactly what that means, but it implies that he's living in grape country. 
And the ruins today are easy to miss, but they, it's a few miles north of Nazareth, a little less than a mile from Cana, where Jesus later turned water into wine at the wedding feast. Now, you don't have to remember most of that. You can find it on Wikipedia if you ever want to dig. I just wanted to press into your minds that Jonah is a prophet, in case you didn't already guess that, which means that a message from the Lord should not be all that jarring or surprising for him. He's used to this kind of thing. He's also, we learn that he's an Israelite. He's from the northern kingdom. And he's been gifted with a pro-Israel message in that time. So he would have been well-loved by patriotic Israelites, you would think. And he's from a small town. He's basically a country bumpkin. He's not a big city type of guy. He prefers a quiet life in the wine country. And that's what that area still is. Much of Israel's most prominent wineries are in that region. It's produced up in the north there in Galilee. So Jonah is living in the Jewish equivalent of the Napa Valley. And for the most part, that's a pretty good life right there. Just imagine preaching a message of victory under a successful king, admired by your countrymen and surrounded by wine. That's not so bad. I could get on board with that. He has it pretty good, and he probably knows it. So what would make a man like that run away? What changed the calculus? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This is another thing that maybe requires some context that isn't obvious to you as a modern reader necessarily. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, if you can imagine on a map, some of you are geography nerds like me maybe, but I don't know. But if you can imagine on the map, Jonah's here in northern Israel. East of that is Syria with Damascus, their capital, right? And past that, you hit Iraq. And Nineveh is where modern-day Mosul, Iraq is. Maybe some of you remember that name from the recent war. Uh, but there's a few things you might want to know about Nineveh. First off, uh, the Assyrian Empire was in decline to some extent at this point, even as Israel was sort of recovering. Uh, secondly, they were a pagan nation. They have nothing in common with Israel religiously. And finally, it's important to realize that Assyria is now Israel's nearest rival, and it's only going to get worse. Uh, because if Jeroboam has conquered Damascus, there's now nothing separating these two nations. This is your border. That's your neighbor now. Uh, and that makes them rivals, and it makes them dangerous, even in decline, because many nations in decline get more aggressive to compensate for that fact. That's why Russia invaded Ukraine, for instance. So for all the good stuff going on, the only remaining threat on Israel's doorstep really is Assyria, and Nineveh is the capital. It's not that close. It's about 700 miles from where Jonah lives, it is hostile territory. Uh, so there are plenty of reasons not to vacation in Nineveh, right? But there are also historical reasons for hard feelings as well. Genesis 10 uh, tells us that Nineveh was founded by Nimrod. That's bad enough. Um, but it became the capital of ancient Assyria, right? And now it's grown to be a big and powerful city. It's 120,000 people, so roughly the population of Allentown, which was big for those days. And we read later that it took three days to walk across. It's, it's, it's about 60 miles wide, according to ancient documents. It was a huge, sprawling city. Uh, but they're not just a powerful rival. They're also a pretty wicked bunch. Uh, not because they slapped each other with fishes, contrary to the Veggie Tales version of the story, 
Uh, but when God tells Jonah that Nineveh is evil, that's not news to Jonah because it is a center of worship for Ishtar, who was a fertility goddess. And if you look around at the ancient world, any city that is dedicated to a fertility goddess, by definition, celebrates sexual sin. They would have had temples dedicated to prostitution, houses of worship, where young girls would be basically pimped out to the men of the community. And the idea was that you could sleep with the goddess vicariously through these young girls. This was common in the ancient world. So Nineveh is a den of iniquity. In fact, it's about the only place Jonah could probably think of that made Israel look pretty good at this period in history. I mean, think about it. What's the worst place in the world today? Like North Korea? Iran and Iraq are still giving you a run for your money probably in that department, right? Greenland? I don't know. I wouldn't mind visiting. Georgia thinks it's too cold. Um, <laughs> There are a lot of places I wouldn't want to visit. There are even more places I would not be excited to do ministry. Because it's one thing to visit a place. It's quite different to start preaching in that place. Uh, When I was looking for a call to ministry, I had spent several years convinced that I was called to preach in Philadelphia. I thought that that was what I was going to do. To the point that I refused to look elsewhere. That was the only thing I would consider. And... If you had pressed me a bit, I would have denied that I was that firm on it. If you twisted my arm, yeah, I I could serve in a number of places, but I had my Ninevehs. For years, I said to God, you can send me wherever you want, as long as it isn't New Jersey, or New York, or Delaware. Um, New Jersey would have been the worst, I think, by far. Uh, All the jug handles and the drivers, the endless highways, Trenton government, Taxes, regulations, and rules. New York sports fans. It's like the worst of all worlds. But I never even thought to include Allentown on my no-fly list, so that's where he sent me. And it's been great most of the time, but even on my worst days, I can always say, at least it's not New York or New Jersey. (laughs) Georgia also had her Ninevehs in the list as well. That's why we didn't go to South Dakota. Um, (laughs) But I don't remember looking at anything that was remotely as hard or dangerous as Nineveh coming up on the list. But this book opens with Jonah being told to go there. Go to the worst place imaginable that you know of and yell at them to stop. It's not an enviable task, and Jonah isn't inclined to take it on. Besides which, in an idolatrous era, Jonah already has plenty of work to do at home, right? So he doesn't have to leave Israel to find people who need preaching to. There's problems right here. Frankly, this command from God is kind of random. So Jonah, channeling his inner meatloaf, says, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. So what does Jonah do? He does what every kid in all those adventure books does. He runs away. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now a couple things strike you when you read that verse. One is that Jonah doesn't take the time to debate the matter with God. At least it's not recorded here. The sense you get is that Jonah is smart enough to know that it's no use arguing with God because he's not going to change God's mind. If God is intent on showing mercy to Nineveh, nothing's going to stop that. Jonah's a Calvinist at heart. 
He knows God is sovereign over these things, but as far as he's concerned, he doesn't have to like it. Another thing you notice is the repetition, sheer repetition of the name Tarshish. The destination is emphasized. It's three times mentioned in that verse, starting before Jonah even leaves the house. He doesn't take the midnight train going anywhere. He has a specific idea of where to go. It's two classic rock references for you. (laughs) And the idea you get is that he wants to go as far away as he can. Tarshish is thought to be a port city in southwestern Spain, near modern-day Cadiz. Other commentators have said that uh, Tarshish could also be a generalized term, meaning just sort of distant ports in the Mediterranean, like basically the land of far, far away. Um, Either way, what's supposed to jump out at you is the sheer, willful disobedience of Jonah. Nineveh is east. Tarshish is about as far west as you can go. And by taking a boat... You will never land at Nineveh, even accidentally. Because Nineveh is essentially landlocked, other than the Tigris River, which only empties out into the Red Sea. There's no Suez Canal in these days, and there was no route known around Africa. So Jonah is actively undermining the mission. His rebelliousness is on full display right from the start. Now, I've sometimes wondered if Jonah secretly told himself that he would evangelize in Tarshish to make up for all of this. Like, maybe this was a counteroffer. Like, look, I'll do Tarshish instead, Lord. They also need good preachers, I hear, you know. And that could be, because most people are pretty sophisticated about the way we sin. Uh, We think of all the mitigating circumstances and excuses and ways we can kind of, like, fix it, even as we're committing it. Of course, the text doesn't say that, but it could be. But yet another thought struck me reading this verse this week, and I don't know why, maybe this is something obvious I should have thought of before, but I don't think Jonah intends to come back ever. I mean, how could he? God would still be waiting there for him. And my guess is that the boat fare was not particularly cheap. Nobody's going to take care of his house while he's gone or anything like that, right? And the dangers of the sea are well known. Uh, So he's investing his treasure and his life in this adventure. He's not just going away until things settle down and God finds somebody else. It's like this means a permanent move in his mind. In fact, he's fleeing much in the same way that Joseph fled to Egypt in our story last week to escape Herod. Whatever danger he's afraid that he might face on this journey, and it's a dangerous journey, it's less dangerous to his mind than staying. He's running like his life depends on it. But what is Jonah afraid of? I ask that because it would be somewhat normal and rational to be afraid of Nineveh. Uh, Some cities are dangerous. Some are downright scary. I don't like going to Philadelphia anymore either, depending on the neighborhood we're talking about. You know, some fears are more rational than others. Fear of Nineveh would make some sense. But fear of Nineveh is not what the text indicates. Nowhere do we get the impression that Jonah is afraid to go to Nineveh. It doesn't say that explicitly here. What does it say Jonah is running from? What is he running from? The presence of the Lord. Yikes. It's so emphatic that he says it twice. Jonah can't get away from God fast enough. 
this is even more messed up than it sounded at first. I can understand not wanting to go to Nineveh, but Jonah wasn't being asked to move to Nineveh, right? God didn't give him a job working in a Ninevite canning factory. He didn't give him the seediest house in the seediest end of you know, Nineveh's like south side or something, right? Like His only task is to go and preach there for a little while. And he so hates the very thought of the place that he would sooner run away and go live somewhere else completely. But it's worse than that. Yes, Jonah hates Nineveh and refuses to go, but in the process he shows contempt for the God that sent him. He hates God's plan so much that he walks away from God. Because you can't reject one without the other. You can't have God and reject his word. Now that's an important point and it has application in the here and now, doesn't it? Because when you reject God's word, you're rejecting him. And there are a lot of people today who would claim the Christian label but who completely disregard his word or believe it selectively. Christians who will deny what he says about sex, for instance, and marriage. Christians who treat large chunks of scripture as sort of, you know, optional or just straight up rubbish. My God would never say or do that. Maybe you've heard that. People are very selective about God's word. Maybe you've noticed. But when you reject God's word, you're rejecting him. You can't be in God's presence and ignore what he's saying. Jonah understood that. So he ran, not from Nineveh, but from God. Not from the mission, but the one who gave it. Because the two things are inseparable. The only credit I can give Jonah is that he understood that. He, he knew that disobeying the orders were treason, so he deserted his post and ran. He goes AWOL. And it's consistent with Jonah's sort of twisted theology. It's ironically almost pagan. Jonah figures like, well, Nineveh is not God's real territory. That's why he's mad, right? Israel is. That's where God lives. By the same measure, I can hide from God across the sea. Off the official maps, right? If I leave Israel, then Israel's God won't find me. I'll be outside of his jurisdiction, beyond his reach. Out like on the map where it says, here be dragons. It's a stupid theory and bad theology, but very relatable. Like I said, Jonah's the worst hero in scripture. But you know, here's the facts. We all have a Jonah streak. None of us naturally wants to go where God calls us, and most of us are really good at running away from God. We're just less obvious and maybe less petulant about it than he was. We're very clever in how we run. Oh, sure, some people run from God in obvious ways. They'll just stop coming to church. They'll surround themselves with new friends. They might even physically move away so no one can see them sinning. But many of us are much more subtle and sophisticated about it, and we'll hide in plain sight. God's presence can feel downright oppressive sometimes, especially when our hearts are in rebellion. And that's where it always starts, right? Because again, Jonah didn't talk back to God in these verses. The rebellion begins internally. And the original Hebrew literally means that he ran away from the Lord's face. It's not just his presence that we don't like when we're rebelling. We don't mind feeling his warm, fuzzy presence. It's his seeing eye that makes us nervous. Like Sauron and 
Lord of the Rings, or Big Brother, if you prefer Cold War dystopian novels. You can't get away with stuff if God's face is there. And this is why we physically hide sin, even though it makes very little sense. And why most people are tempted to sin all the more when they think they're alone and away from prying eyes. It's why so many young people start partying in college, as if God won't know, because my parents don't, right? But this dates back further than that, because, heck, Adam and Eve did the same thing, didn't they? Hide in the shrubs, he'll never look there. Let's hide behind the couch and leave him a note. Get away from his face, and then you'll be off the hook. So where do you go to hide? Maybe you try to hide from God in plain sight. Jonah ran away to Tarshish, but we find creative ways to hide right at home, right in front of everybody. We will do anything to avoid God when he's telling us to do something we don't like. He calls us to pray and read his word, and we'll tune him out. And we let ourselves get distracted. We encourage it. I I saw a great meme this week. It said, there are no limits to what you can accomplish when you're supposed to be doing something else. (laughs) I found that convicting. We allow ourselves to get busy so that we forget what he told us to do. We pretend his commands weren't clear enough sometimes. Uh, Or we'll turn up the music in the car to avoid hearing him or thinking about him or talking to him. Perversely, I used to listen to sermons just so I wouldn't feel guilty for not praying. We might go to church but avoid the extra stuff. We just won't go to the potluck or the Bible study so we don't have to actually talk to anybody, right? Maybe you have an addictive habit that you use to sort of bury your guilty feelings. Uh, Some people even hide behind a sense of humor or a boisterous personality. Maybe if other people can't see the real me, God won't either. It's a sophisticated method. Not really any different from Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's not really very different from Jonah. We run because a healthy fear of the Lord has been replaced by a terror, and we're afraid he might see us. We find it very natural to run from God. We don't like his rules, but we especially don't like his snooping. We don't like him seeing And it feels like oppression, especially if we're acting out. And when we do something wrong, we don't want God to see it. And God's presence comes to scare us because our heart is far from him. And Jonah's a perfect picture of all of this. Jonah's first sin wasn't physically getting on the boat to Tarshish. It started in his heart when he was angry at God for sending him to Nineveh to begin with. And running away, getting in the boat was the natural reaction of a man caught in that sin. So what makes you want to run from God? When do you most tune God out and reach for your phone and study your Bible and turn up the radio and watch TV just to fill the void in the empty space? When do you most want to avoid church or all your Christian friends? I debated this week. Is it good to have a sermon on just these three verses? Because I thought to myself, I mean, Ken gave me too much credit, said, oh, yeah, pastor always gives us the gospel. And I thought to myself, where is the gospel here? Um, I try to preach it in every text, but this seems like a stretch. Um, how can you see Jesus here in light of the anti-hero Jonah? But that's the thing. That's also why 
this entire book is relevant. Uh, we can all relate to these opening verses. And, and it sounds horrible, but this is actually really why I love it. Like, kids love the story because of the whale thing, right? And that's great. That's a cool part. We'll get there. Uh, but the everyday drama of running from God is why this book has teeth. And the gospel, I think, could be seen in two ways. One is that the book doesn't end here. The sheer fact that verse 3 is not the end of the book, that's credit to the gospel right there. Because what that implies is that the story doesn't end just because you run away. If running away worked, there'd be no need to write more. But you can also see the gospel through the contrast. This entire book is an indictment of Jonah, yes. And it's supposed to look messed up because it is. And it should shock the conscience because that's how God intends you to respond to it. But as we go through Jonah, you will see the gospel by playing the record in reverse. The gospel is in what God says to him to begin with, the fact that God is inclined toward mercy, a mercy that will extend to Jonah as well. And as you go through Jonah and you start seeing the gospel as you play the record in reverse, it's like the joke about playing a country song backwards. You get everything back, your wife, the truck, the car, like all that stuff, you know, the dog. Similarly, you will see Jesus by holding up a mirror to the text and seeing the reverse happening. Because there was one man who was sent to a pretty nasty place, worse than Nineveh, worse than New Jersey. He was sent to a world full of Ninevehs, but he went without complaining. It's the story we've been talking about since Advent. Jesus goes on the greatest missions trip of all time, and he gave up all that heavenly glory to come to earth as a poor carpenter's son in a backward corner of the Roman Empire to live a perfect life, die a perfect death, and rise again and ascend to the Father's right hand where he is now today making intercession for you, representing you in God's court. And doing so free of charge. Most lawyers are rather costly. If you're a Christian, you have the greatest lawyer before God the Father possible. You have his own son, and he represents sinners, including runaways. So when you feel guilty, you don't need to run from God's presence anymore. Quite the contrary. That's your natural impulse. But it's completely wrong and backward. When you are guilty of sin and don't want to obey God and your heart is far from him and you feel like hiding, the place you need to go is back to his throne and back to Jesus. And he will receive you and forgive you and he will send you back out again. Why? Because our Savior is greater than Jonah. Jonah's not the hero of the story. Jesus is. He always is. It doesn't matter what book you're looking in. And when the Father sent him on a mission, he went gladly and he finished the job because he loves us. And now that means that the gospel means that you can stop running. Or better yet, you can run the other way. Run to Jesus. Leave your sins with him. And you don't need to hide anymore. He had mercy on Nineveh. We're going to see that he's going to have mercy on Jonah. And he'll have mercy on you too. And that's good news. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I'm so thankful for this book, Lord. It says so much of the quiet part out loud in some respects, Lord, with Jonah. 
Lord, he's not a good hero. He's not even really much of a positive character. He's not a role model. And yet here he is. And you are teaching us through it. Because we're more like him than we like to admit. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the contrast, Lord. We're going to see just how badly it's going to turn out for him running away. But Lord, we thank you that ultimately you don't let us run too far. We thank you that your arm extends further than anywhere we can run. Teach us to run back to you. Teach us to run to your son, to run to Calvary. And to lay even our rebellious hearts there, Lord, the unspoken thoughts that nobody even knew about. Teach us not to hide. We ask these things in Christ's name. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. (laughs) 